Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us snow. You can't refuse to kill us in this car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and, and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers, three long fingers. And this is when the mental tortures. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. All right, guys, we're back on Conspirate Orwell. And. We just had an awesome party the other night. Rob's still recovering from it. Yeah, the hangover's starting to fade. It, <laughs> it took a couple days for this one. It was it was pretty fierce. <laughs> this was a mixture of green beer and Evan Williams, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the Evan Williams that well, it was Guinness. I wasn't drinking the green green beer. I was you didn't drink any of the green beer? Nope. Which was really just PBR with green but I, dye, right? But I drank like eight tall boy Guinnesses. Mmm. I think they were like pints. And Eight like of them? Ounces. Yeah. Man, I didn't realize you drank that much. And I was helping helping Lukey with his Evan Williams. Yeah. <laughs> I passed out sitting right here in this very chair. The party surrounding me. Yes, you did. <laughs> and Alyssa was like, come help me with this stuff. We got to get this stuff inside. Oh, yeah. I remember that. And then I later carried, on, like, you, passed out on the, you passed out on the easy chair and she was trying to get you to go to bed. <laughs> and you just like, you just, it, it was like, you're just like a zombie or something. You're just like, <laughs> oh, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> complete, I, complete and total blackout. <laughs> I, I, I just stop off for a nap in the chair on the way to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, ama- it's amazing how I can, I don't think I've ever been blackout drunk i don't think it's ever actually happened to me maybe it's either because i just can't get that way or maybe it just i don't drink enough but i don't get that way very often this was not something that i'm necessarily proud of but it it happened and, and we we also hope that there might be a 
change in the sound quality. Well, I'll definitely sound more relaxed than I was last week. Yes. And that would be because we have a ceiling, thanks to Adam and our good friend Patrick. Yes. Yes. Uh, we do have a ceiling, a, a drywalled ceiling now. There's still a few little patches that need to be filled, but yeah, for the most to, part. Yeah. We're going to do the walls, too. So I'll get those when I do the walls. So are you seeing any difference in acoustics in here? Or? Um, it's actually, yeah, it's a little more reflective. Like if you clap real loud, it's like, you, know, you hear the little slap back, but, uh-huh. but it's all going to, yeah, there's still a lot more work to do. I'm just glad that we won't hear the squirrels anymore. <laughs> well, you actually had something interesting happen to you to, to do with squirrels. Yeah. Yeah. I was tearing the last little bit of the old insulation out. It was Tuesday morning. We'd been going for like three days straight and I was out here like, I was exhausted and it was eight o'clock in the morning. I had my morning cup of coffee and I pulled it out of the ceiling and a dead squirrel fell out with its claws, like perfectly positioned out in front of it to snag my hoodie on its way to the floor. So it was like this little zombie squirrel staring up at me. Yeah. You sent me a picture and I had just woken up and I, it was one of those moments that's like so shocking and horrific that like you lose focus on reality for a second and you don't really fully understand what's going on. Like what the hell is that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So had Squirrely been? Uh, had he been scampering up and down? Had we heard him before? Oh, I'm sure he's been on a few recordings. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I don't know how he got in there because I cut down all the branches that like were close yeah. to the building. Maybe he was up there when I cut the branches, and he couldn't get back down to the ground. Uh, so he just starved to death. It seems like a squirrel would figure out a way to. Camper down the wall or something. Yeah, well, you would think, but I don't know how smart they are, honestly. But <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a chore. I mean, you still got some things to do, but uh, I think the the most uh, better part of it is done for sure. The temperature is definitely nicer out here. Yeah, yeah, not as not as drafty. I mean, compared to like what it was when we first got in here when it was a garage instead of a studio right exactly exactly um yeah i mean you had the garage door and you we don't have that anymore those you have the actual actual doors and um real light fixtures in the ceiling yeah there's real light fixtures in the ceiling which look very good by the way thank you we need to take some pictures and put them up on the website or on yeah. the facebook page we should definitely definitely do that because probably nobody can really understand what we're talking about until <laughs> we actually it makes makes really good radio, guys. We're happy about it. That's, uh, what, yeah, that's what we're you happy need about it. It's it's an achievement. Slowly but surely, the studio is coming along. Rob's gathering his empire in here uh, tonight, guys. We have Zach Hunt uh, going to be on the show. Zach is a local Nashvilleian, just as we are. And we're going to talk about, well, he has a blog called ZachHunt.com, which used to be called AmericanJesus.com. And which, I, I don't know if that is a uh, allusion to the Bad Religion song or not, but uh, we are going to talk a little bit about basically some of the same kind of stuff we talked about with Dr. Future, uh, talking about the evangelicals and how much they love Trump, uh, what their attitudes are, and maybe like a, just a way of a better way of looking at Christianity so that it's not beholden to, um, well, basically the Republican Party and quote unquote conservatism. 
And how do you feel about that, Rob? Um, well, I'm glad there's people out there doing that. I mean, I'm, you know me, I'm, I'm not setting any one religion. I'm, I'm just a very free, open-minded kind of guy. And I, I, separation of church and state is just vastly important to me. And I think it should be important to everybody because we don't, you know, I mean, that leads to just tyranny. That's all it can lead to. Yeah. Yeah, eventually. But we hear so much about, uh, I don't know. I want to get in, I really want to get into him about this. So let's take a break here. And we will be right back with Zach Hunt on Conspiracy Normal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> hey guys, we are back on Conspiranormal after that little Nice brief intro discussing our new studio and St. Patrick's Day parties and the like. But uh, we do have the guest here with us, and that is Mr. Zach Hunt, who is a fellow Nashvillian. Hello, Zach. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. I've have actually followed you for a long time, as I think I told you as we were talking. But uh, followed your blog for a probably God maybe six seven years now. I'd, I'd say. Well, what you didn't know is I've been secretly following you as well. I have tracking software of my readers. <laughs> right, right. You've got uh, in your our smart TVs that we have here in the studio, right? Well, I'm actually more of a microwave surveillance kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what he's referring to there, Rob? The the surveillance of the microwave. Vaguely, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't know the details behind the story. Yes, yeah, Carrie and Conway said that they can watch us in microwaves. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Who knows these days? I mean, literally, you cannot know the truth anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you're unique as well, Zach, because you're a fellow uh, Nashvilleian. And indeed, back home, and, and glad to be here. Yeah, I noticed you were in Connecticut for a while. Yeah. Um, my wife, uh, did her OBGYN residency at UConn and, um, I, uh, did graduate school at Yale and, um, then took care of a mm. one-year-old. Well, now she's three-year-old, um, for a while. And then we had another one. So I did a lot of, uh, changing diapers and, um, making bottles. I, I feel like I'm quite the expert in that field. So if you guys want to talk about that, you just let me know. <laughs> did they let you join Skull and Bones while you were up there? You know, um, I actually had a class right across the street from the tomb and, um, I never like, okay. So the door was open one time, um, and I tried to like peek in and you can't see anything. So like the door opens <laughs> to a, a wall and, the, um, and it goes, uh, like left to right and you can't really see anything. Like there's articles and stuff up there. Um, and like some students a while back snuck in, but I mm-hmm. only saw one person going in and like, Especially if you saw the movie Skulls or, or the Skulls or whatever with uh, Jonathan Jackson, Joshua Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have random pop culture knowledge that's completely useless in life. Um, well, like you, don't we all? <laughs> when you watch that movie and you think that like everybody in Skull and Bones is, uh, 
you know, the super cool jock, uber rich people. And, and, you know, maybe there are some of those people, but the only person I ever saw in there was this scrawny looking nerdy dude that like might've been directly out of revenge of the nerds. Um, like it was not <laughs> the, like the caricature, uh, George W. Bush type person that's, you know, super smart and manly. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was cool. Um, I, uh, I got a, there was, there was one Facebook post, like somebody hacked somebody's Facebook account and posted a bunch of, bunch of pictures from a, um, a skull and bones party that they had. And it was out on like, so like there in the movie, there's that Island that they go to and they do have an Island. Um, and that's where this party was going on. But like the place is a dump. Like it's just this yeah, old yeah. rickety house from, you know, like the sixties or seventies that's run down. And the pictures were a bunch of like, nerdy college kids drinking beer like there was nothing exciting or mysterious or i don't know it took all the mystery out of it you didn't see geronimo's skull in one of the pictures <laughs> supposedly it's there but no they uh they kept that out of sight yeah yeah that's a, that's an interesting history <laughs> you, you'll never know what exactly is going on interesting that you mentioned an island because in our last episode our guests mentioned this like island somewhere in michigan that is supposedly owned by the Freemasons and they won't let anybody on it just, just as an aside, <laughs> but uh, we did mention Yale there, but I wanted to want to talk about your background, kind of your educational background, because uh, let's establish that because you are, you are not a lightweight when it comes to theology, sir. I call myself more of a middle featherweight. How, how's that? I gotcha. Okay. I, I don't want to put myself up there with the uh, real heavyweights of the world. Because <laughs> they'll call me out and they'll send me text messages and hateful Twitter tweets and be like, "You don't have a PhD." I'm like, "That's true. I I do not have a PhD." Well, you're pretty close. That's true. I've spent more time and accumulated more student loan debt than I would like to admit. Mm-hmm. Haven't we all, sir? Haven't we all? <laughs> but uh, you have a, a what is your educational background? So, uh, an undergraduate, I was indecisive, so I double majored um, in religious studies and history, political science, and um, thought I was going to be a youth pastor coming in, and then decided I didn't want to do that, so I tried to go the pre-law track, and then decided I didn't want to do that, and ended up a youth pastor again, um, went to youth ministry, and ended up going back to school and getting a master's in theological studies, um, and continued in youth ministry for a couple years, and like I said, Five, wow, five years ago now, uh, my wife matched for her residency in Connecticut, and we tried to um, you know, line that up so that she could go to school and I could go to school too, and it just happened that we ended up in Connecticut. So she went to UConn, and I got to go to Yale Divinity School for a couple of years and majored wow. in history of Christianity. Um, yeah, it was awesome. I had a good time. It was, uh, it was a really cool experience. So that was like a separate degree, basically, like a separate undergraduate degree or a graduate degree? The history of Christianity? Yeah. Um, that was graduate. Okay. So it was a master's degree. So you did your first year undergraduate. Was that at here at Treveca? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the undergraduate and the first master's were both here at Treveca um, in uh, good old Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. Mm-hmm. I know it well. Yeah. Know Treveca pretty well. Actually, um, our friend Dr. Future, uh, Future Quake, they used to play, they, they, the radio station at Treveca used to play Future Quake. During oh, yeah? the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very cool. Yep. Uh, highly regarded as someone you need to meet sometimes, sir. So, but future uh, Quake? yeah, Future Quake, our good friend uh-huh. Doc Future, who's been on who's been on the show several times. 
Interesting. What a small world. Yeah, I, you would appreciate it. Like I run into old Trebekka people or random Trebekka people everywhere I go. We, I was in Savannah last weekend and um, we went on a, a ghost tour. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, it was a, uh, it was cool. It was, it was neat. I mean, for nothing else, and we didn't see anything, obviously. Um, but you know, we, it was um, the history of it. You know, and the stories were cool. But there was a team of professional ghost hunters with us, and so I got to talking to one of them, and I was telling her about because there's a couple of ghost stories that we have from Trebekka. And she's like, oh, yeah, I know Trebekah. I did my master's there. I was like, what? So we, we're kind of infectious that way. We Trebekah folks kind of show up everywhere. Yeah, I had never heard of it before I actually moved to Nashville. Yeah, but it's, apparently it's, it's a very well-known school. It's it's crazy. We 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 get places, man. <laughs> now, did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Nazarene church? I did. Um, I am a fourth generation. Yeah. Fourth generation Nazarene. My wife is a fifth generation. Her like second uncle or something like that helped uh, found the denomination, believe it or not. Now, where would you put uh, the Nazarenes on like a spectrum of like conservative to liberal? Like where would you put them? Um, <laughs> we, we have a bit of a split personality disorder. Um, in our denom- like theologically speaking. So if you were to go to an average Nazarene church um, or know an average Nazarene person, um, which would not be me, um, they we tend to be socially conservative. I mean, across the board, pretty socially conservative. Um, and so like a lot of old Nazarene jokes, like if you were, if you were to go back to the founding of the denomination, um, you know, Nazarenes didn't wear – jewelry including wedding rings because it was too os- considered too ostentatious mm-hmm. um, you know women certainly didn't wear pants um we didn't go to movies we didn't drink we didn't play cards we didn't dance so a lot of fun obviously in those uh, <laughs> um a lot of those things uh, have changed the denomination officially is still teetotalers although you know if you go to europe um that is different especially in the country like germany um but yeah so um, they would, you know, everyday Nazarene would fall on the conservative evangelical side of things. But on paper, if you look at our official like articles of faith, um, the denomination has some pretty progressive stances. Um, we've yeah. been ordained uh, relative to conservative, you know, the rest of conservative evangelicalism. Um, so we've been ordaining women since our founding. Um, although we certainly need to do a better job of getting them jobs. Um, we do not believe in the total inerrancy of scripture. Uh, meaning that we believe mm-hmm. the way we articulate it is that the Bible is inerrant in all things pertaining to salvation um, or something like that. Um, so we believe the Bible perfectly reveals the path to salvation, I guess, um, but it's not a perfect text in and of itself. Um, we don't believe it's a science book or a history book, um, you know, in those sort of literal senses. Um, and so, like, we also don't believe um, or the better way to put it is we are open to interpretation on uh, the idea of creation. And so you do have some Nazarenes who are pretty staunchly uh, Ken Ham fans. Um, and then you've got <laughs> some Nazarenes who are pretty staunchly in the you know evolution camp as well. Um, you know, we don't take a position on end times kind of stuff that's sort of opened up as well. So like, there's a lot of things that um, on paper, at least we are surprisingly progressive about. Um, but then there's a lot of things in the sort of day-to-day uh, life of the Nazarene church that are certainly very uh, conservative. So we would fall in the um, mess of theology sometimes <laughs> category. Um, or to be more generous, I'd say we're a, a big tent church, um, or at least we, we aspire to be, I think. 
Now, as I understand it, the the Nazarenes kind of they kind of stem from the Azusa Street. I may be I may be incorrect here, so correct me if I am yeah. wrong. But the Azusa Street revival of the I guess the early twentieth century. But at yeah, a certain so- point, the Nazarenes started out as charismatics, but they later kind of rejected a lot of the charismatic things like speaking in tongues and those aspects. Kind of. So um, it's, that's where we kind of make uh, confuse people. So um, we definitely have roots uh, from Azusa Street, um, though I would say that our deeper roots are in Methodism. Um, and so a lot of the guys right, who okay. uh, founded the church um, or me- were Methodist pastors. Um, the, the guy who kind of gets credit as the founder, although, again, there's kind of a group of guys – um, is Phineas F. Brzee, and he was uh, from Los Angeles, and so he, um, you know, would have been around Azusa Street uh, when it was going on. Um, and so they're they're born at the same, or the Nazarene Church is born at that same moment, and they originally adopt the name Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, and yeah. so that's that's where they get this, or we get this reputation for being or having a charismatic background. Um, but it, we actually are not and have never been charismatic um, in that sort of sense of like speaking in tongues. Um, or at least that's the big, the line that we draw um, that would divide us from like the, the bigger Pentecostal movement. Um, you, you would see back in the day, you would certainly have charismatic as an adjective, um, like tent revivals um, in churches. You know, I've seen people when I was younger, I've gone to camp meetings cause we still hold camp meetings um, where people would run the aisles or, you know, stand up and wave their hands and do that kind of stuff. But that's typically about as charismatic um, as Nazarenes get these days. Um, you know, you definitely hear somebody say amen or somebody stand up, you know, during a song. But um, for the most part, they're traditional um, conservative white Protestants who, you know, sit peacefully in the pews until uh, it's time to go. Yeah, I did notice that because I believe at Treveca, there's one of the buildings there, there's some st- glass windows that show or it may be some marble reliefs but it shows jesus and it shows some of the other church fathers and yeah john wesley is one of those yeah yeah Yeah, we you know i mean some of it's um sort of rewrite our history a little bit because there certainly are pentecostal connections because you know we come out of the holiness revival uh of the you know early 20th century but today especially but also at our founding so um because again, it was kind of a conglomeration of you know a few people who were coming out of that, a few people who were coming out of Methodism, and they all agreed that holiness, um, or this sort of idea of holiness as this and sanctification as a second work of grace, was really important. So that's what unites them. Um, but Wesley, you know, John Wesley in particular, um, obviously his brother Charles too, but um, John Wesley is definitely considered a um, theological grandfather um, of our denomination for sure. Okay. Yeah, my dad is a Methodist, yeah, so oh, good. Yeah, I was a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're good. For, I mean, if you you know went to um, you know your average Methodist church and went to your average Nazarene church, the only real difference that you would notice would be you know pastors wearing you know liturgical garb. Um, mm-hmm. You know that that would really be the biggest. I mean, you, you, some of them would be a little more traditional, but if you went to a, like a contemporary like Church of the Resurrection, um, you know Adam Hamblin's church out in Kansas City. That you know something like that that's a little more contemporary. Although I think he's got you know various services. But if you went to a contemporary Methodist church and a contemporary Nazarene church, you you wouldn't really notice a big difference, um, at least from a Sunday morning service. Yeah. How do you feel about the charismatic 
movement. I mean, how do you do you feel? How do you feel about the aspects like speaking in tongues and and I mean, I, I know there's so many there's so many aspects to it, but you know, you have some people out there that even believe that they can even raise the dead now and stuff like that. Like, what do you think about some of that? It's interesting. Um, I think it's a maybe a complicated subject. So like, you know, I grew up in the Nazarene church and, you know, we were always really insecure about not being lumped in with those people. Um, if that makes sense, like we don't sure. speak in tongues and, you right. know, um, I've, <laughs> I've had plenty of people, uh, I actually worked in the Methodist church for a while. And when I was interviewing for the job, somebody asked us if we asked me if we, uh, handled snakes. Um, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and we do, but that's personal. Uh, no, um, we don't, <laughs> we, we don't handle snakes. Um, but you know, so we've always been sensitive to, to do that. I think part of the problem with like addressing that conversation is there's such a wide spectrum of what it means to be charismatic. Right. You know? Um, right. You know, so it's easy to dismiss that movement, um, and, and, and with a big broad brush and say, this is a group of fanatics who do weird things and make claims that are ridiculous about, you know, whether it's raising the dead or there's weird stuff about gold dust falling from the sky. And yeah, I've it, heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it's easy to take the extreme quirkiness of that and dismiss the movement as a whole. Um, but, you know, I have friends who are, and this is obviously anecdotal, but um, you know, friends who are very serious about their faith, who are much more or would be as suspicious of that stuff as I am, even though they would probably identify as, you know, Pentecostal charismatic. Um, you know, one of the other aspects that tends or of, you know, the charismatic movement that tends to be caricatured is this lack of theological reflection. Um, and, and that's certainly the case for some, you know, um, areas of, or some corners of the movement. But like I said, I've got a lot of friends who are deeply reflective and deeply serious about, you know, being orthodox and understanding, you know, the roots of their faith and, you know, developing a systematic theology and, um, you know, taking their faith and the development of their faith and discipleship every bit as seriously as any, you know, mainline or traditional church. So, you know, um, you know, theologically, I, I would raise some questions and doubts about anything that causes confusion or distraction in particularly in time of worship when our focus is supposed to be on God. Um, sure. You know, and so I, but, but as much as I would criticize something in the charismatic movement that might do that, like fake gold dust, I would emphasize fake cause I don't, there's no even remote, uh, biblical, historical, theological justification for that. But if, you know, if that's a distraction, I would also criticize, you know, laser light shows and fog machines and, you know, <laughs> a mainline Christian church, is yeah, yeah. you know, so it's, it's not limited to them. Um, you know, I, I think that they're, they're like any other tradition, honestly, you know, there's some really great, wonderful people and there's some great, you know, some crazy people. And that's the same for the church of the Nazarene and for Methodism and for the Catholics and for, you know, Eastern Orthodox folks and, you know, anybody, um, you know, that you can meet, I think, you know, I've gotten to a point now where I'm less concerned with the minutia of your theological position or the nuance of like, you know, how you interpret, you know, Paul's talking in whatever first Corinthians passage it is. 
um, than I am with whether or not you're feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and caring for the least of these. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not old. I'm 34. But, you know, the longer I do ministry or the longer I write and reflect the faith. And as I get to a point where, you know, my children are growing up and I'm going to start having to teach them the faith. And as I think about, you know, how am I going to do that? You know, what, what are the important things that I'm going to emphasize? And, you know, theology is so important to me. Orthodoxy is, you know, so important to me. Um, but the more I look at the life of Jesus, the more I see someone who's concerned much more with how we treat our neighbor than what we profess to, you know, to believe theologically. I mean, sure. look at the greatest commandment. It's not the greatest commandment is make sure you check off this, you know, did you memorize the apostles creed? It's, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor is yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as long, as long as you're incarnating the faith um, as long, or incarnating Jesus to people and, and you're not abusing or um, hurting people in any way, you know, if, if handling snakes is your thing, then more, more power to you, I guess. I, <laughs> you know, you know, the funny thing, I saw, okay, not to ramble, but um, in my first day of intro to, to Bib Faith, um, uh, the, or maybe it was New Testament, the professor gets up there and he looks at um, the passage that the, the snake handlers get that from is in, uh, I think, Mark 15. And we look at it and he says, well, you know, we're, we're Bible believing people. And he has this read us this passage in Mark that says, you know, we'll, we'll take up snakes and drink poison and we won't be harmed. And he says, well, why don't we do this? And, you know, we're all these wide eyed freshmen and we've all been in Sunday school our whole lives and we're all dumbfounded. We're like, well, you know, I don't know. You know, the Bible says we should do this. Why aren't we doing this? And he's like, well, think about it and come back to the next class and, and we'll discuss it. And so we get there and you know, we've all got our deep theological answers that, you know, in retrospect, made no sense. Um, but the answer to the question was simple. Those verses don't appear in the Bible. Um, they're in our Bibles today. But if you look at the verse, there's a footnote. And at the bottom, it says, you know, these passages or this passage does not appear, um, you know, in the oldest manuscripts that we have. So, hmm. yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting when you start paying. Um, do, you, do you know when they were introduced and why, by chance? Um, that's a great question. There's a church story and I should know that. Um, but I'm not a Bible historian, so I don't have to know that. Um, <laughs> no. uh, that's a great question. I don't, my guess is that it's in the first millennia. So give or take a few centuries there. Um, but, but most of those things that we have that are additions, um, so it's called like redaction criticism. So you'll see that you see that more in, in like liberal scholarship, um, than you do in you know, most conservatives. I mean, you see conservative scholars doing redaction criticism too, but it, it's looking back at the gospels, looking at well, anywhere in scripture and, and seeing, um, okay, was this part of the original text and trying to see, because sometimes you'll come across a passage that's like, wow, this is kind of out of nowhere and it, and it really throws off the flow of a chapter. Um, and there's a chance that that was added um, by a scribe. And if you begin to look at the language and look at this, that, and the other, you know, it becomes apparent that certain parts um you know, were added later on, um, whether that means later on in the sense of, you know, Matthew wrote it today and somebody, you know, after he died, you know, the next week added something else or, you know, they added 200 years. Um, the Bible has a lot of that, um, kind of stuff and it doesn't, t- you know, take away from the truth of it, um, per se, but, um, you know, I don't know. Most of it happened within the first couple of centuries, um, of the faith because, you know, Christianity is not this monolithic thing that, you know, pops out of, uh, Galilee in 33 AD after Jesus dies. And then it's just sort of this orthodox thing from that point on. You, 
it's really more accurate to talk about Christianities, plural, um, particularly for the first century of the faith. Um, right. You know, that's what Constantine is trying to combat um, in the fourth century when he brings people together in Nicaea. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's certainly political motivations, but they're also trying to unite the church and try to say, okay, we have all these different ideas. Well, what, you know, what, what can we agree on that's going to unite us? What is the true faith? What is, you know, the gospel? What is orthodoxy? Um, and so in that interim period of the first century and really the first, man, two, three centuries, if not more, um, I'm embarrassing myself if any of my um, more educated <laughs> friends are, are listening, they're going to make fun of me for saying, well, you didn't mention this, but, you know, for the first few centuries, you've got, you know, not just the books that we have today, but you've got other kinds of um, what are now called apocryphal texts um, that, you know, look kind of weird to us today and are like, wow, why would anybody read that? But we're used by Christians, um, faithful Jesus believing Christians um, in the first couple of centuries of the church before the Bible coalesces the Bible. And so um, some of that stuff like this, the snakes and the, uh, um, and the, the drinking poison um, would have gotten in during that period um, of the faith as, as what we are calling the New Testament became the New Testament, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, Sorry, that's a really rambling answer for it happened early on. <laughs> if you look at the, if you look at the gospel of Mark, um, there's, I believe it's Mark. I think yeah. that there's like what the last, the last few verses are actually kind of, um, disputed as to whether that was actually in there to begin with or not. Yes. Yes. That's a, that's a really great point. So, yeah. you know, the, um, the passage of the snakes and the poison is just kind of a fun, quirky thing, you know, it doesn't really have any ramifications, but the end of Mark, um, I think it's actually Mark 15 and the other one is not Mark 15 because Mark only has 15 chapters. Um, or does it have 16? I should be Googling this so I can look more intelligent and not look stupid. They're like, this guy has a degree from Yale and he doesn't know how many chapters there are in Mark. I was a church historian, not a Bible scholar. Um, but, but no, you're exactly right. Um, Mark, the original ending of Mark ends with, um, the women going to the tomb and then they run away because they were afraid. Right. And that's it. Yeah. Um, well, they do find it empty, right? Isn't that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. They do find it empty, but then they leave. Um, but there's no post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in the original Mark. And so, you know, that's really interesting because Mark is considered the oldest gospel and it's considered the gospel on which Matthew and Luke both base their gospels on. Um, and they obviously both have, you know, resurrection stories. And so, you know, the, the problem with it is that it opens up the door to people saying, well, see, the, you know, the oldest Christians didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, um, yeah. And that simply would not be true. Um, so it, it, it's interesting and it raises a lot of questions and should should spark a lot of conversations. Um, but but yeah, you're right. Uh, the mark, the ending of Mark is is really fascinating. The footnotes in your Bible are fascinating if you if you take a second to look at them. And that's probably the most fascinating one. Yeah, that was a good example of it. I think um, one of the most good examples of it. Let's talk a little bit about your blog before we get into sure. some of the deeper stuff. Um, you know, what were you trying to, cause you started it out was the American Jesus blog and now it's just yeah. sack hunt.com. Uh, yeah, that, what, exactly. what did you set out to do with that blog? What was kind of like your goal with it? Um, so, um, as I was telling you guys before we started, I, I've been writing about this this week for a, a book I'm contributing to. And, you know, I was strolling down memory lane and going back to the beginning and thinking about that. And, um, it, it it didn't really start off with this, uh, you know, a big purpose in mind. I mean, not that I have some, you know, magical plan today, but um, 
a, a youth pastor friend of mine and I, you know, we'd have Google Talk open on our computers while we were working during the day. And, you know, we'd send funny stories or videos or memes or whatever. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd talk about them. You know, sometimes it would just be, ah, ha, 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 this is hilarious. You know, or if there was some, you know, serious story, you know, we'd end up having some conversation about it. And at some point, you know, we got the um, arrogant idea that the rest of the world would benefit from our um, humor and insights and uh, and decided to start a blog. Um, and so we called it the American Jesus. Um, it's uh, one, we just like the imagery of that because, you know, we we're going to focus on the, you know, American Christianity and the ways. Now, that was that from the Bad Religion song? Cause you know, some- that's the, the funny thing is I've never actually heard that song. Okay. Um, it's a weird thing that like, I, I've, I mean, I know about it. Um, and I knew pretty quickly cause people would ask me about bad religion. And now like I have this bizarre thing where I don't want to listen to it because like out of some weird principle that makes absolutely no sense. Um, but now that I've dropped the American Jesus, I should probably listen to it. Um, well, they are, they, they are kind of like a humanist kind of like atheist. They have that, that worldview. Oh, some of my best yeah. friends are atheists. I, I love those folks. Um, it's, yeah, it's mine not, too. Those, those kind of reasons. It's, <laughs> I'm telling you, like, there's really no legitimate reason. It's just dumb on my end. Uh, but no, it's uh, Stephen Prothero is a professor at Boston University, and he wrote a book called American Jesus, which is actually really, really good, um, way better than anything I've ever written. Um, and it traces the, I guess, evolution of Jesus in America um, from the beginning when uh, – uh, Thomas Jefferson makes his famous Bible where he gets a hold of a Bible. I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with this, stop me. Um, but he, he gets a hold of a Bible and he grabs a pair of scissors and some glue and starts chopping out pieces of the gospel that he doesn't think Jesus actually said, um, or things that he doesn't believe Jesus actually did, like all of the miracles. And he creates his own Bible. Right. Yeah. Um, Jefferson Bible. Mm-hmm. Jefferson Bible. Um, and so th- he, uh, Prothero kind of uses that as the foundation for understanding American Christianity that we sort of cut and paste our faith based on, you know, cultural milieu of the day, our personal interest, our biases or prejudices, you know, or, you know, just our cultural settings. And uh, it's a fascinating look um, at that. Um, and it traces it up to the modern day. And so we just like that imagery. And, um, and so we, we went with it and the early days was, was really just a, uh, an incarnation of our Google talk, um, exchanges. And so it was a lot of, you know, we'd write a post every once in a while. Um, but it was a lot of, Hey, here's a really silly music video from the eighties or, um, Oh my gosh, can you believe this church sign? And, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so it was fun. Um, it was a lot of satire, you know, it wasn't anything very serious. Um, but, um, he eventually got a real job, um, as a real, pa- as a pastor, and, um, you know, I, I kept on youth ministry and, and kept doing the blog and, you know, a couple of years ago decided that, you know, I wanted to do, take things in you know a little more serious direction and not quite be, you know, beholden to only talking about American Christianity or overtly American Christian themes, um, all the time. And so I, I kind of rebranded under my own name, um, just cause I'm egotistical and want people to know who I am really is what it comes down to. <laughs> what are some of the best subjects that you talk about on the blog? Like, so what's some of the, um, like what concerns you the most about uh, American Christianity as it is? Um, wow. I think, so if you follow me for any length of time, you probably get tired of me citing Matthew 25. Um, you know, for me, that is 
the heart of the gospel. Um, it's the one place in all four gospels, the only place where Jesus explicitly describes how he's going to decide, you know, who goes to heaven and, and who does it. Um, and you know, it's not, did you affirm the virgin birth? Did you, you know, believe in the right atonement theory? You know, it's not even, did you go down to an altar and say the Lord's prayer? It's, I was hungry. You know, did you feed me? I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? Um, you know, and so like, that's obviously become a big point of contention in, you know, recent weeks and months with Trump and the refugee crisis and things like that. But, um, that, you know, that, um, disconnect between, you know, Protestant or white evangelicalism in particular and, you know, Matthew 25 or the, you know, uh, the gospel in general, you know, didn't happen overnight. Um, you know, it's, it's been going on for a long time. Um, not just decades, but I mean, you could trace it back to Charles Finney uh, in the late eight, uh, 19th century, um, who has people come down to what's called a mourner's bench. And they essentially sit down on a chair in front of everybody and confess their sins and have what's really the the, the um, forerunner to the um, the altar experience that we have now where, you know, at least in the Nazarene church where you're like, you know, do you feel Jesus speaking to you tonight? Why don't you come down and, you know, lay your sins on the altar and Jesus will forgive you. Um, you know, that, that mentality or that framework begins in late 18th, 19th century in the, um, third great awakening. And then the holiness revival really picks up steam, which is what my denomination came out of. Um, and the problem is, you know, it, I mean, it really goes back to Martin Luther, if we want to be honest, and the idea that we're saved by faith alone. Um, you know, Martin Luther still had a big, heavy emphasis on, on how you live and Calvin who follows him certainly did, um, as well. But the, the holiness movement, the Third Great Awakening, you know, Finney, all these other guys um, really begin to change that in a lot of ways. And so they still emphasize particular way of life. Like I said, you know, earlier about Nazarenes, you know, um, we were really big on this second work of grace or this big conversion moment. But we were also really big on these particulars on how you live your life. The problem was um, and the problem still is that when the things that we emphasize in the particular ways of life aren't always social justice, although the Nazarene church to their credit early on was really big about caring for the poor. A lot of the things we worried about then and now are, are you smoking? Are you drinking? Are you having sex before you're married? You mm-hmm, know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, but the problem is um, ideology um, has become our savior. Really? I mean, Jesus is there, but it's not really Jesus or really even his death on the cross. I mean, that helps, but what really saves us, is our confession of faith in evangelicalism. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, not to jump ahead, but I mean, I think that's what opens up the door to a lot of Christians being able to accept or convince themselves that someone like Donald Trump is a Christian. It's because he said so, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's it. And that's all that really matters. And so all these other things are secondary. Um, and so that opens the door to a huge amount of problems. And so I think the underlying, where my rambling is going, the underlying theme of what I write about a lot is, is the problem in really not just evangelicalism, but, you know, American Christianity in general and, and Christianity around the world. Um, and that's the problem of, of loving ideology more than we love people. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that we, we idolize right belief. Um, we, we hold intellectual assent up as the most important thing in the Christian faith. Um, it's, did you, 
verbally confess Jesus is Lord. Um, and as a starting point, that's great. But the problem is we make it the end point. And the reason that's a problem is that James goes on and says, you believe that Jesus, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, you believe that Jesus is Lord. And he says, great. Even the demons believe that and shudder, you know? So mm-hmm. yep. the idea, you know, that our right beliefs is going to save us is, is just nonsense, not just to James, but going back to Jesus again in Matthew 25. And so for me, the, the biggest thing and the underlying theme, I think, in all my writing is restructuring, I think, how we understand salvation, although I don't ever really articulate it that way, but how we understand salvation and how we understand the Christian life and that we understand that the Christian life is fundamentally tied to salvation, um, that works do matter. Um, that when 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 Luther talks about works being bad, he's not talking about feeding the hungry. He's talking about you know religious rituals um, that the Catholic Church required. Um, and so for me, I think a big part of my writing mission, I guess, if, if I might be overstating it, is trying to recapture Matthew twenty five um, and is re- trying to put incarnating the faith back at the forefront of Christianity where it was for at least the beginning of the faith. See, I wonder if people even think about it, even think about it in the same way that you're thinking about it. I don't think so. You know, because I think a lot of people just look at it and say, well, you know, Hey, I don't even know if they even think about it to say like, well, I'm saved and therefore I can do what I want and I don't have to, you know, do all these other things because there are people that will go out there and they will, you know, do a go down to the rescue mission and they'll volunteer and they'll, you know, maybe feed the home, the homeless and, or have like a, a canned food drive or something like that, or donate to their church to give to orphanages, all these different things that Christians do and should be doing. But yet at the same time, we'll be like, well, I don't want, you know, the Muslims here and Donald Trump is the, right hand of God. And, you know, because yeah. you, because you do see that as well. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I think kind of what you kind of alluded to at the beginning is part of the problem is there's a lack of reflection on things like self-reflection. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think the, the amount of reflection that a lot of people put in their faith is begins and end with begins and ends with the question of, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And, once that question is answered, everything else is just gravy, so to speak. Um, you know, th- there's, there's not really an, an impetus to, to do anything else. If, if all I have to do is say this prayer and Jesus will forgive me and I go to heaven, then why do I need to bother thinking about all these other things? And so you really can't blame them. You know, like there was this book that came out several years ago called Almost Christian. And it was written by a um, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, Kenda Dean. And it was looking at, at youth ministry um, or looking at teens and, you know, how you know young people are all leaving the faith and, and that kind of stuff. And so they did a bunch of research and studies and, and we're looking into that and looking into why, um, you know, teens are doing that. And they discovered that, you know, a lot of people, um, uh, what would they call it? Moralistic therapy. No, I'm sorry. Moralistic therapeutic deism um, was the name that they, they came up with. And what they mean by that is that these Young people believe that, you know, God is good, um, generally good, and God is there 
um, for you when things get really bad. But like, that's about the extent of your, your faith. Like that's about the extent of the relationship with God. Um, and, and that wasn't really, you know, revelatory or news, but what was interesting was that, you know, these young people, now they would be millennials, um, weren't coming up with this stuff on their own. I mean, this, you know, radically reduced or reductionist version of Christianity where, you know, I, I did my prayer, I got saved. Now God's there when I need him and I don't have to worry about him when I don't. What is not the invention of millennials? Millennials are just practicing the faith that they were taught by their parents and their parents are just practicing the faith that they were taught by their parents and, you know, and so on and so on. And so it's frustrated as I get with nominal Christianity that can say Jesus is Lord while living a life that says Trump is Lord or Caesar's Lord or however you want to put it. Uh huh. Same difference. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we all bear personal responsibility for things, but I don't know how much of it is the fault of the laity and how much of it is the fault of the church for doing a really bad job at discipleship. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it does. It really does. I I mean, you definitely see this, that there are specific people um, out there in the evangelical community that really have pushed Trump. Yeah. You know, guys like Rick Joyner, you know, yeah. Jim Baker, these, all these guys, I, you know, I, yeah. there's so many others. What is it? Uh, Lance Wall now, you know, is another one that pushes Trump and it's just, they see him. It's almost as like, they see him as being like, well, he's not perfect, yeah. but he's going to protect the unborn and yeah. he's not going to pers quote unquote persecute us like that evil Obama did. Yeah. And they, so they're willing to overlook the grab the pussy comment and yeah. all these other kind of things. And, 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 you know, the, the one thing that I heard so much, uh, leading up to the election was, well, he's the new Cyrus or the new yeah. King David, because God will, God will use imperfect men like Cyrus and King David to lead the Israelites home. And then there's yeah. that equation there with the Israelites and going back to per, going back to the Holy land when Cyrus comes in, you know, he, they go back to the Holy land and, and equating that with American Christians, which is just yeah. frightening. It's always interesting to me that like when people turn to the Bible to make these, you know, America's God's people arguments, they uh-huh. never turn to the new Testament. They never look at Jesus. It's always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was, it's such a weird phenomenon. I mean, it's such a disturbing phenomenon. Um, I don't know that. I mean, if I'm being fair to self-professed Christians who support Trump, I'm, I'm sure there, I know that there's a multitude of reasons why they cast their ballot the way they did. Um, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor and he's also a psychologist and he had a really interesting insight. And um, he talked about the power of hell. In, in this, and I don't mean hell is in like a, a real physical place, but just the, just the concept, whether or not you believe it's real or not, just the concept alone and how powerful it is. Because like you said um, earlier, you know, one of the driving forces, I would say one of the big driving forces that allows people to compromise their faith to support someone as objectionably awful as Donald Trump is abortion. 
And, and it is this belief that if we can just get one more Supreme Court justice, even though it keeps mm-hmm. the balance exactly the way it was for the past 20 years, if we can just get one more Supreme Court justice, we'll overturn Roe v. Wade. And if we overturn Roe v. Wade, there will be no more abortions, which is all complete and utter nonsense. Um, you know, like if you even if you outlawed abortion tomorrow, um, it just moves into the shadows. It doesn't end. You know? Plus, it's been 45 years since Roe v. Wade and no yeah. and Republicans have been in power a, a good percentage of that time. And it, nobody's repealed it yet. Yeah. And, and it's not going to happen. But it is an incredibly powerful wedge issue, um, you know, for people. And so the Republican Party um, has realized this. And I think that's and it's a large reason of how of why they've hijacked Christianity. I mean, if you go back pre moral majority in the sixties or seventies, go back to earlier, um, you know, evangelicalism, evangelicals, to whatever extent they are involved in politics, and it's not to the extent at all today. Um, abortion is not a major issue. Um, you know, it's an issue for some people, but it's not this um, die on a hill kind of thing. It's not till Jerry Falwell shows up um, and the rest of the moral majority and make it this big issue that it becomes this dominant thing. Yeah, that would and be it, more like in the 80s, probably. Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So the 70s, it's not 80s when they show up. It is when it becomes uh, this sort of thing. And I think – and this is a conversation I was having with my pastor friend – is that for a lot of conservative Christians – Abortion is a is not just a black or white, right or wrong issue. It's an issue of heaven or hell. And so they believe that if they in any way support abortion or allow for abortion, even in extreme cases, that their soul is damned to hell for eternity. And he, he was telling me about a study um, that a psychologist was doing, and I don't know that it was directly on hell. I actually tried to you know take the time to look it up, and the study I found was done on the effect of terror and terrorism on the brain. And um, I'm going to cheat and read this from the article that I read. the The professor of psychology at the Einstein School of Medicine, New York, said the normal long pathways through the orbitofrontal cortex, where people evaluate situations in a logical and conscious fashion and consider the risk and benefits. Um, of different behaviors that get short circuited in a moment of terror or when we feel, you know, um, intense fear. And if you put that in the context of hell, it begins, it helps these, this, this Christian support for Trump, at least for me, make some sort of sense. Because if you are completely and utterly convinced that if you don't, uh, if, if you don't, if you're not pro-life, that you're going to go to hell forever, that if your eternal salvation rests on this one issue, then you can push everything else to the side. You can look beyond the grab the pussy comment. You can look beyond the corruption. You can look by, beyond you know his um, you know refusal to ask for forgiveness. You can look beyond you know all of the awful things. You can look beyond his demonization of the people Jesus said you needed to love. You can look beyond the gospel even um, yep. because heaven or hell are at stake. You know, and your brain, according to this this study, and you know it's not definitive, but I think it's an interesting. Uh, Look at this. I mean, if your brain is actually shutting down and your ability to make rational thoughts is shutting down because of fear, I can't think of a scarier thing than eternal conscious torment. And why I don't affirm eternal conscious torment, if you do, if you're convinced that that really exists and that you're headed there, if you don't take the stand against abortion, then it, it starts to make sense how you can turn a blind eye to everything else in Christianity and support Donald Trump. If he, if he, if he gives you this carrot and says, yeah. if you, for me, we'll get rid of abortion. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. I think there's some other aspects involved as well. And especially when you get to the whole Muslim issue. Yes. Okay. Uh, There is, there is a, and and this is absolutely nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity, but it's wrapped up in Jesus and Christianity. And it's also wrapped up in this idea of Christendom. You know, we talked about on the show, about one of Steve Bannon's favorite books. You remember this one last week, Rob? Yeah. Talking yeah. about the Camp of the Saints, this this book that basically was written by this French author in the 1970s, talking about this wave of migrants coming into Europe and how they were going to fight for Christendom and for Western civilization. So you have this whole Christendom and Western civilization thing against the dark hordes of the East. And that that, in effect, really is just tribalism. And then there is also this whole idea that people will hold America and the the United States, the country that they're in as in almost like an an idol against with Jesus. Like, you know, like I've seen so many things, so many pictures, Jesus hold the American flag or, you know, uh, uh, the, the song, I saw Jesus waving the stars and stripes and it's like America and patriotism and ultra nationalism become mixed together with Christ, who was probably the least nationalist, (laughs) you know, what did he say, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and and give unto God what is God's, you know, know, there's someone that was executed by the most powerful state in the world at the time, you know, uh, it, it, it nailed to a cross, the symbol of this powerful empire. Yeah. You know, totally the opposite. But pe- but people will say, no, Jesus in America, it's the same thing, man. Yeah, I mean, there's something. I want to kind of piggyback on what you said. I mean, let's not especially here in Nashville. Yeah, go up to you know go go up here a little bit from us. Go over to um, what's the church over there where they do the rappelling off the oh, wall? Uh, 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 cornerstone. Uh, wait, where, what? Yeah. Uh huh. They rappel. Yeah, they have soldiers repel from the wall during uh, Fourth of July. They have a massive flag. Well, during Easter last year, two years uh-huh. ago, they did a uh, no. It was March Madness. They wheeled in like um, what was it? Uh, oh, basketball <laughs> goals, and it had people like shoot for money. Um, yeah, they they do. They man, they are full of gimmicks, but they're full of patriotism too. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's bizarre because I mean, and I think. I think it's twofold. I think fear is part of it because again, like it's xenophobia and racism, you know, we're, we're afraid of people who are different. Um, you know, but there's an intoxication to the idea of authority affirming. I mean, we all love the idea that authority affirms our, our beliefs, right. And it's the logical fallacy known as appeal to authority, right. Because, you know, just being authority doesn't justify an argument or appealing to authority doesn't justify an argument. But there's something even more intoxicating about God affirming your bigotry, your, your worldview, right? Um, and so I think that's really the appeal of American Christianity, of, of the American Jesus, of, of the things sort of things you're describing is that, and really the appeal of Donald Trump. I mean, this pitch of make America great again is a really thinly veiled euphemism to make America white again 
um, you know, to make America like it was in the fifties, the good old days. And it's, it was the good, the good old, old days that never exist. The good old unless, days never exist. Yeah. Unless you're a middle-class white guy and then yeah. it was great. You know what I mean? Or a rich white guy. Um, and then maybe, maybe, you know, America was great at that point, but I think what's been so intoxicating about Donald Trump and then by extension, what's intoxicating, why people are so eager to marry him to Christianity or marry America to Christianity is that he represents the normalization of a lot of really terrible beliefs and attitudes. And now that he's president in the minds of a lot of people, it's okay to be racist. It's okay to be xenophobic. It's okay to be misogynistic. And all of that gets lumped under the other euphemism of not being politically correct, um, which is really just code for, I want to be a jerk. You know, I want to say whatever I want to say, everybody's feelings be damned. Um, but I think, and, and, you know, I've tried to understand this for a long time and, and it's hard to understand because as we talked about before, like so much of American Christianity is a walking contradiction. I mean, you have people who not, not just, you know, support a vulgar mis- misogynist, but people who are, you know, rabidly opposed to refugees, even though the God they worship was a refugee. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it makes no sense. You have people who right. are rabidly in support of the death penalty, even though the God they worship suffered the death penalty, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, they're radically opposed to Muslims, even though, and we talked actually my pastor preached on this this morning, even though Jesus goes out of his way to eat or to eat with Samaritans and turn them into the good guys in his hero or into, you know, in his story. Um, but you know, and there we, are churches out there that are reaching out to refugees and are absolutely. reaching out to Muslims yes. and people and Muslims are converting. But as long as, but as long as we're sitting here saying, no, we don't like you don't come here. It's like, we, there's, there's, we're not going to, those people are not going to come to Christ. Yeah, They're just not. Well, and that's, that's kind of, you know, one of the, the frustrating things is that, you know, the people, the news media gets a bad rap, but and I think unfairly a lot of times, but one of the fair criticisms is that, um, you know, they tend to report on the most outrageous and provocative things. You know, as a blogger, I get that those things generate traffic and, you know, they're in, in the business of reporting the news. But to be honest, they're in the business of, you know, paying their bills as well. You know, we all have mortgages and and rent and, and you know, food that we need to eat. Um, and so, you know, they've got to sell ad space and like the shocking and the crazy and the insane you know, causes more people to click on news stories and causes more people to turn the nightly news. And so like the, you know, the Christianity that is so uh, hypocritical, the Christianity that is so ridiculous, the Christianity that is so hateful gets a lot more attention than the Christianity that's finding new and creative ways to serve the hungry, um, you know, food trucks into, you know, free meals that are, you know, finding homes for refugees that are, you know, welcoming LGBT people or whatever, you know, the issue is. And you're right. There are lots of people doing that. And, and that's what's so hard about the conversation is even if you try to say, and it's easy to pick on evangelicals, but like, what is an evangelical? You know, like it's a broad based term. Yeah. Like, you know, um, even at Yale where you're supposed to have all these super smart people, I sat in the classroom, the history of American evangelicalism. And we could not, I mean, not that I'm smart and along the lines of these guys, but people who went on to do PhDs at Yale and Princeton and, and blah, blah, blah. And none of us could come up with the definition and our, you know, esteemed professors couldn't come up with the definition that all of us could agree on because it, it's, you know, it's kind of like jello, you know, like you throw it against the wall and it just goes to pieces. Like it, it looks like it's this firm, solid thing, but as soon as you pick it up, it just, 
you know, falls apart in your hand. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you can have one person who believes they're an evangelical or would profess to be an evangelical and they voted for Donald Trump and they hate the Muslims and they don't, you know, if, if their kid are, is gay, they're going to kick them out of the house. And you have another person who's evangelical, who's, you know, radically affirming and who, you know, opens their door to refugees and can't believe Donald Trump is president. So, you know, it's a hard conversation to have. And you know, like, you feel like you're constantly hedging on things, or at least I do with, you know, well, there's those evangelicals and those evangelicals. But, you know, I think the problem is and, and why it should matter to all of us is that at the moment, those evangelicals, meaning the ones that are supporting Trump, are, are kind of be, have become the face of Christianity in America to the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and, and here's the, here's the thing. Here's the scary thing is that, a lot of people, and this was a few years ago before Trump even said that he was going to run for president. You know, people were saying you'd, you'd ask people that maybe were not uh, Christian, or maybe they weren't exposed to it. Like there was a poll out there, I think, that said, like, you know, what do you think when you think of anti? What, what do you think when you think of Christians? Yeah, not evangelicals, not American Christians, just Christians. Yep. You know, it's like a billion people on the planet, and they're like anti-gay. That was the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what's so frustrating is that, you know, and it's certainly not all the media's fault, but like some of the blame lies on the rest of us for not doing more to make, you know, a, a, a bigger, I mean, it's hard. Cause like, you can't just sit there and say, guys, look at all the awesome charity things I'm doing, you know, cause that's a problem too. Um, but you know, I get frustrated, <laughs> yeah. you know, from a pastoral and, and from an academic standpoint too, you know, I look online and there's, you know, a finite amount of theological traditions and a finite amount of, you know, religious, religio political positions too, that like take up most of the, um, the space online, you know, the people like progressive corners or mainline corners, you know, those parts of Christianity for some reason have the hardest time engaging culture, whether that's, you know, TV. I mean, look who dominates the TV wave. I mean, there's no reason that like, you know, every Christian brand under the sun should, you know, couldn't have a TV show or whatever, but the only people, the people that dominate, you know, the, the Christian airwaves are the, you know, the wackos who are saying, give me your money and I'll make you rich. Cause God's going to make you rich or, or whatever. You mean Peter uh, Poffoff's miracle water yeah. doesn't work. <laughs> Man, I sit that guy $10,000. Who's the guy selling buckets? <laughs> That's Jim oh, Baker. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and it's the same way, like, um, uh, take your Mark Driscoll, for example, you know, like I can't think of someone or there are a few people that I disagree with on the you know, issues of theology more than Mark Driscoll. Um, but when he was at Mars Hill, they did fantastic graphics. They made incredible videos just from like a, uh, not from a content perspective necessarily, because obviously theologically I'm not on the same page, but just aesthetically, you know, um, they're creating really high quality material. And for someone like me, who's on like the opposite in the theological spectrum, I look around and there's hardly anyone who's, who's doing that. And, and, and even fewer people who are doing it well. And so like, I think that carries on into the exact, you know, the stuff we're doing with Trump, you know, you're starting to see, you know, more people speak out louder. You know, you're seeing people starting to take more action. You're seeing people starting to come together in groups more and trying to be more intentional. And and so I'm hopeful about that, but yeah, I, man, I don't know. I don't know how this, this resolves itself. I mean, yeah. I mean, if this isn't the closest thing that Christianity has seen to a schism, um, you know, since the great schism or even the reformation, I don't know what it is. Cause I mean, you know, one of the things that infuriates me about it are the people in the middle 
who look at this Trump Christianity issue and see it as just just one more political debate, you know, that, oh, it's just a difference of opinion. And it's like, it's it's not, you know, I mean, we're talking about the fundamentals of our faith. You know, we're talking about the nature of the gospel. You know, we're talking about who Jesus is and what it means to be Christian and and the the, the view on that or or the way that's being played out is is not reconcilable. I mean, I've said it, Miroslav Volf has said it, a million other people said it. You can't follow Jesus and support Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's irreconcilable. Well, I look at Trump, you know, whenever I would look at Trump before he ran for president, I was never like, oh, man, that guy's like the paragon of Christian virtue. Yeah. You know, like never in my mind did the, the, the words Donald Trump and Christian come together until 2016. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing how people find their faith when they are trying to get elected. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the way I look at it, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's a cynical power politics, right? I mean, in in effect, you know, Putin has kind of done the same thing over in Russia because now he's seen Putin, the guy who poisons people with radioactive materials. Yeah. He's seen as the paragon of the defender of the faith over there. Yeah. And for some evangelicals here in the United States, he's seen that way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's crazy. I mean, there's just no other way to to describe it. I mean, we can sit here and like try to diagnose it, and you know, I think that's important, you know, to try to understand where these yeah. people are coming from. Um, but like at the end of the day, I mean, I, I mean, I think you fight fear with love, but it, it's it's hard to even have a conversation with people who are so convinced that you know, Muslims are coming to, you know, blow them up or, you know, atheists are going to take away their Bibles or, or whatever, you know, well, it, like, how do you even start that conversation? You know, I think that's kind of the big question of the day. Look at the God's not dead movies. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it's perfectly fine to, I, I, per, I, I mean, I think I would have probably appreciated it had it been just a debate to prove the existence of God or to prove the existence of or, or, or an apologetic for Christianity, but yeah. also through the whole thing, it's just like the evil atheists and they they're all out to get us Christians. And you know, the, 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 the colleges are going to corrupt your children and the anti-intellectualism that runs through yes. evangelical Christianity is also worrying. Oh, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think it's obvious that Donald Trump is the climax or the culmination of the marriage of American Christianity and politics, particularly evangelicals, conservative evangelicals and politics. And he's rapidly anti-intellectual. I mean, you know, he's gutting the arts, he's gutting the EPA, he's gutting the state department. Um, you know, it's, it's terrifying. I, I think going back to that make great America again statement, you know, as much as it's a make America white again, I think it's also make America black and white again, like ideologically, not racially, um, mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, I think the appeal of Donald Trump and the appeal of certain theological traditions is that we live in a rapidly changing world. Obviously, we la- we live in a world that's increasingly or it gets smaller by the day. I mean, we live in a globalized world and, and the people who used to be those people over there that, you know, you never really had to think about are now your neighbors. And for a lot of people, yep. that's scary. You know, issues of 
gender identity and, and marriage are, are changing, you know, have changed rapidly in our country and how people support that and how people don't or whatever, you know, those numbers have shifted. Um, and you pull those things together and, and it's, it's scary, you know, and, and when you are confronted with the reality that like those conversations require a lot of nuance, whether it's, you know, dealing with same sex marriage or, or dealing with, you know, your Muslim neighbors or, or, or whatever it is, like, you can't have those com- you can have those conversations in black and white terms when those people live on the other side of the ocean or they're not part of your family but once they become part of your family and they become your neighbors like your ideology becomes difficult to sustain if it's just black and white you know and Donald Trump shows up promising black and white answers to everything um and yeah. victories and everything and i think that's the appeal of him but it's also appeal like you said like with god's not dead is that you know, you have this enemy that you can still demonize an atheist. You know, you have this enemy and um, uh, and professors in the academy or whatever, um, and it's all black and white. And you have this hero student who shows up um, and and proves that like Christianity is right and that you know we've got all the right answers. And that's what it's all about is right answers of, of black and white questions with black and white answers. And I like to tell people I I don't know if you guys know this, but I had. Uh, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma last year. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing fine now. It it was, uh, if you're going to get cancer, get Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, (laughs) It's got a, uh, I always joke, I make a lot of cancer jokes, so my apologies um, for that uh, before I begin. But it's like a fake cancer. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, It's like, you know, we go to, I show up at a cancer survivor meeting. They're like, what are you doing here? Um, That's a joke. Uh, There's no cancer survivor (laughs) meetings that I go to. Um, it, it's got a 95% cure rate. Um, so it's like, it's, you know, don't get me wrong. It was terrifying. The day sure, that I, yeah, that absolutely. I, you're, you're a young guy, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, people aren't supposed to get cancer. I mean, you know, it's, it's scary and it's awful, but you know, it's, uh, I'm doing fine and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's over with thankfully. And, uh, anyway, but during that process, um, along with getting to tell a lot of inappropriate jokes that make people uncomfortable, um, you know, there was a lot of people that reached out to us. Um, thankfully, a lot of people that supported us and, you know, two friends or a couple of friends of ours, um, really stepped up the bat. I mean, I think if, if anybody was Jesus during that time, it was them. I mean, they started a GoFundMe page that helped us pay for medical bills and for traveling. They watched our kids. They brought us food. You know, when I was going through chemo, they helped us move. I mean, they were Jesus in every sort of tangible way that I would expect Christians to be Jesus and they're atheist. Mm-hmm. And I, I try, I, I thought I, you were going to say they were gay, but uh. <laughs> um, no, they're worse. They're atheist. No, um, <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's, and I always, when I'm talking about like, my cancer stories and stuff like that, I, I like to bring that up, particularly at churches, you know, because like we like to pat ourselves on the back through movies or through devotional books or through sermons or whatever about, you know, how like we're the, um, we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. And if it's not for us, then, you know, the world's going to fall apart and, and whatever. Um, you know, and the reality is like the world's a lot more complicated than that. You know, yeah. um, faith is a lot more complicated than that. God is a lot more complicated than that. Like God, if you read the Bible, God has this nasty habit of showing up in places where God's not supposed to show up. Um, and God has a nasty habit of working through people that he's not supposed to work through like prostitutes and adulterers and murderers and Samaritans, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the great challenge of our time in the Christian faith is not Donald Trump. It's how do we 
practice Christianity in a world that's not black and white. I mean, that's always been a great challenge, but we've, we've been able to live in a black and white world for millennia because we all live in our own little tribes. You know, we live in our little tribe called America. That's, you know, that's separated by two huge oceans from everybody else in the world. You know, we, we, you know, if you're white, you have the ability to move to your, you know, white flight neighborhood and go to your white only, you know, schools and, um, you know, live in your own little community and even, you know, beyond racism stuff. I and mean, we have the ability to live in our own little denominations, you know, to go to our own little churches, to have our own circle of friends. And so it's easy to, you know, live in a bubble and the internet, you know, social media, politics, globalization, the economy. I mean, all those things are shattering our ability to live in that bubble and practice our faith in the bubble. And I think what you're seeing with Trumpism, you know, with Christianity is, is panic and, and is, is, fear and not knowing how to do that. And so you got a guy who promises to rebuild the bubble and that's intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Sorry for the rambling. And, and you know, your point there about us being secluded to all, to just to ourselves and like-minded people. And, uh, you know, with this show, I mean, I try to get people on that have different points of view. You know, yeah. I've had people on that are fervent Trump supporters, you know, just because I want to understand where they come from. Sure. But you know, and but also to add to your point there, it's like, what did Christ say, you know, to the apostles? Go and teach to all the nations. He didn't yeah. just say, you know, go and just teach to the Jews, even though it did kind of start out that way. But he yeah. did say, go and teach to all the nations. And yeah. sorry, go ahead. I, didn't I wanted to Rob to get Rob's opinion on some of this. <clears throat> um, I had a good point. I forgot what it was there. Sure you did, Rob. Uh, <laughs> no, it was brilliant, man. I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> what What was the last thing that you were talking about there, Zach? Um, it was brilliant. I can tell you that much. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, what were we talking about? It was about Black the uh, about us being secluded in our different. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, our white people and Christian people. Yeah, because for me, religion has always been it's a, a deeply personal thing. Like it's you know I, I don't want to you know use the old like oh i'm not religious i'm spiritual kind of adage or whatever but like it's 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 that thing you know where for me it's a it's a quest and i'm always growing i think we should all always be growing and i think for a lot of people um not from any particular denomination or religion but it is just a comfort zone yeah and it's a you know i'm i'm taking care of i'm you know when i when i die i'm going to heaven i don't between here and there, whatever. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to take account of, or I don't have to have any accountability or, um, you know, it's, it turns into a crutch and a, a shortcut to thinking for a lot of people. And I've been saying that for a while about the whole social media, about how that's kind of, um, I don't think the world is a worse place than it was 10 years ago. I think that we're just seeing way more of the, the, um, the darker side of it because that's yeah. kind of what gets popular and that's what gets spread around and that's what gets thrown in our face. And I think that's kind of what we're dealing with. So I just wanted to kind of agree with you on that point. Yeah, no, you know, I agree. I mean, I think one, I think it's important to note, you know, that we all live in bubbles. Like it's not a conservative thing. It's a conservative, it's a progressive, it's a people in the middle. You know, we all, I mean, echo chambers are awesome because echo chambers tell us that we're right, you know, mm-hmm. and that you yeah. know, they affirm our worldview. Um, but yeah, no, I um, completely lost my train of thought on where I was going. <laughs> that's, that's embarrassing. Rob has a tendency to do that to people. And derails. 
I was mis- I was mystified by your brilliance, and it just it <laughs> and I totally forgot what I was going to say, and it was going to be amazing. Well, uh, let's let, let's talk about another one that just kind of sure. sticks in my crawl, and that's uh, that's Ken Ham. <laughs> I know you've blogged about Ken Ham, and we talked about this uh, a few shows ago. Ken His, Ham blogged about me too. So did he really? Yeah, he, uh, you'll have to tell me about that. But we, but we, uh, we talked about this where he now his uh, you know he's got that whole arc the uh, so bad. the yeah. arc thing. Okay, like the full scale replica, and you know, and I'm cool with that, man. If you want to believe that, and you want to build that thing, but like, like, like. It was fun. It was also partially funded by the state of Kentucky. Yes, and that kind of like that's where you kind of cross the line. But yeah. he's got this like diorama in it where he's working on this. Uh, I guess it's like a, a coliseum picture <laughs> yeah. where it's like giants, humans, and dinosaurs fighting each other. <laughs> And then the best part of it is that he's also building this whole thing about the book of Genesis. And one of the things that he's building is the tower of Babel. And I'm just, and I'm just thinking, does no one in, does no one at answers in Genesis get the irony in that? (laughs) (laughs) Do they not think that like (laughs) they're building the tower of Babel? Obviously, God did it like that the first time. <laughs> are they building like a model? Or are they doing like no? A he's he's doing he's supposedly he's doing like a full scale replica, however that may be, of the Tower of Babel. How, where did he get the measurements from? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's said to the heavens, so I mean, I'll give him the clouds. That's at least thirty thousand feet, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Ken, uh, so Ken Ham is, is an interesting figure to me because like in, on one side of the, the coin, like he is completely ridiculous and the things that he does are, are just hilarious. Like that diorama, like it, it looks like it's something that like some college student got bored and was maybe on drugs and made, uh-huh. for, you know, a history class as a joke because it's like gladiator meets Jurassic park. And you're like, where did you come up with this? Well, uh, I don't, I think I know where you fall on the whole young earth creation thing, but uh, oh, yeah. you know, that museum, and I've said this before, that museum reminds me more and more of the time machine ride at the beginning of idiocracy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Especially really now when you add the dinosaurs in. Well, and now that you you have the the fact that idiocracy is real, and, yeah, 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 <laughs> and we live in it. See, I, I really want to go see the exhibit, but I don't want to pay and contribute because yeah. then I'd feel bad about myself. No, I I, I really want to go see it just because of morbid curiosity. Feel but, right. Yeah, he. It's just it. He's so frustrating. He's like, like I said, there's there's the funny side of it, but then there's like the kind of serious side of it. I mean, there's the middle part where you're like, you know, you can obviously throw biblical scholarship at him or scientific stuff or, you know, you can throw Augustine who wrote a treatise in the fourth century on the literal meaning of Genesis, which is what it's called. And he essentially says, if you believe that the creation account in Genesis is a literal account of what happened, then you're an idiot. Um, Like he uses like slightly nicer language. I think he says you're a fool. Um, Mm -hmm. But like he like, I mean, Christianity has not affirmed a literal um creation like as an orthodox position and there's certainly people who believed it but like there are maybe better way to put it there are people in the christian faith 
great leaders of the faith who have thought that Genesis was allegorical since the dawn of the Christian faith and before it, because it's a Jewish tradition to use allegory like that. Um, and so there's those issues in the middle. But the thing that bothers me is is to go back to something we were talking about earlier is his he what he's done is not just look foolish and make Christians look silly. He sanctified that anti-intellectualism and that anti-science position that we, we were talking about before. Sure. And so, you know, as much as other people are to blame for Donald Trump, I mean, I think people like Ken Ham are profoundly to blame for not just Trumpism, but like the the marriage of Christianity to the anti you know, um, intellectual components of Republicanism is that he sanctified with biblical language and like, you know, um, Christianese, this idea that like Christians should doubt science and that Christians, you know, shouldn't believe, you know, um, what science tells us because the Bible is superior. And I mean, you know, on the one hand, that's obviously a false dichotomy, but like on the other, like that's what opens up Christians to doing things that, aren't just destructive to the environment and aren't just silly, but like are contrary to our faith. Um, Cause Genesis, which Ken Ham loves so much comes with a pretty clear command from God that we're supposed to care for the earth, you know, and it really helps um, if you're going to care for the earth to know how to care for the earth. And science does a really good job of, of telling us how to do that. And so like, as much as I, I mean, I, I think he's, and he is an endless source of amusement because, like you said, like he's constantly building ridiculous things and saying ridiculous things and doing ridiculous things. But like he's also sanctifying people's anti-intellectualism, um, and that opens up the door to a whole host of problems that have become president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's just like people don't think about, you know, this whole 6,000 year theory. Okay. Yeah. Now the latest thing, and I don't know if you've noticed this, I don't know how much time you spend on Facebook, but the, but the latest thing now among a lot of these quote unquote fringe, uh, Christian people is flat earth. <laughs> I saw that. Did you see the NBA players that are really into this? Oh, well, yeah, no. Today, Shaquille O'Neal. We were just talking about that. <laughs> yes. That. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and Tila Tequila. It's, but it's, she goes to Nazi rallies, too. So She's a nut job. Yeah. It's like, okay. So the part of me that wants to like try to wrap my mind around this says, you know, there are certainly community p- parts of the country. And I think it transcends uh, racial demographics and goes more to socioeconomic demographics, but racial, you know, racial demographics are certainly part of it that have been marginalized and exploited by the government, by science that have, I mean, look at something like the Tuskegee experiments, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have the government infecting uh, or, or making or exploiting, I guess I'm trying to think of a really harsh word, exploiting, um, but I mean, making servicemen of color sick for their own, you know, scientific experiment or using, that's the way I put it, using people of color as scientific experiments. I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's awful. And so like, if you're the, the, the generous side of me wants to say, if you're coming out of that context where like in the South, Tuskegee carries a lot of weight, you know, and so it creates a lot of doubt and suspicion of the government and justifiably so, you know, I, I can wrap my head around that is maybe the cause of why you would also doubt your public education, but like Kyrie Irvin went to Duke, who's, you know, one of the other basketball players who did this. Um, he's not a dumb guy. 
Like he's a yeah. smart guy. Yeah. And like, and like the article in Yahoo <laughs> said, you know, Shaq has, has flown to China. Like what was Charles Lindbergh doing when he flew around the earth? You know, like forget all the like science experience. Like you can, you can take a boat out of Miami where Shaquille O'Neal used to play basketball and you could take that boat and sail it all the way around Africa, all the way around Asia, come back down. You could, you know, uh, cut the way through and save some time and go through the Panama Canal and get back to Miami. Like, how would you do that if the earth was flat? And people do that. Like, well, see, well, you see, we're on a dish and, <laughs> and Antarctica is the big like. Uh, yeah, so you're really cheater. You're really boating in a circle around yeah. the, the land yeah. mass in the center. It's it's crazy <laughs> on a turtle. <laughs> well, I know what you mean, though. Like there's been a, a few times I've. I brought this up in conversation thinking it was going to be something kind of silly and funny to talk about. And the other person I was talking to was like, yeah, but did you know this? But check out this and look at this. And they were totally like, oh, God. Into I mean, it. Like, <laughs> well, that's what you see in like, um, you know, you can look at, like I said, I was trying to rationalize it with, you know, maybe Tuskegee, but like you see it with rich white guys too, you know, who deny climate change, you know, because yeah. You know, they have their own reasons or you see it in rural America denying, you know, fill in the blank, you know, evolution, you know, for example. Um, it's just I mean, like I said before, like it's an across the board, across socioeconomic lines, rich people, poor people, white people, black, you know, black people. You know, it's du- st- stupidity knows no bounds. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Like it's <laughs> it's breathtaking. Stupidity is people. equal opportunity. Yes. Stupidity <laughs> is an equal opportunity employer. I like that. <laughs> what did Ken Ham write about you? Yeah, I was, I've been curious. Um, so I wrote a blog post uh, called, how did I call it? Oh, the Bible isn't perfect and it says so itself, um, which obviously he would love, you know, so I was kind of surprised that he was upset about that. Um, but it, it got a decent amount of traffic and, um, stuck in a few people's crawl. And, um, he, and one of his cronies who, who wrote it, um, basically like he jumped all over cause I was at Yale at the time. And so he jumped all over that, that I was this crazy liberal at this godless university. Um, and basically uh. <laughs> said that I was, you know, preaching heresy and leading people astray and wolf and sheep, like all the generic stuff. Um, and, you know, was reassuring his people that, you know, the Bible is perfect and we can trust everything it says, blah, blah, blah. Um, and never really engaged my argument at all, which I thought was somewhat decent. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, the typical <laughs> Ken Ham stuff. You're a heretic and you're trying to lead the people of God astray. Um, but, yeah, it, it was a badge of honor. I, did you, I, yeah, I was going to say, did you take that as a sign that you're doing the right thing? <laughs> Absolutely. I need to print it out and, and frame it. <laughs> And, and hang it on my wall. So where do you fall on that whole thing about uh, creationism? I mean, where do you fall on that? Oh, I would be, um, I mean, I absolutely affirm evolution, um, but I also absolutely affirm the existence of God. And so, yeah. you know, that is certainly hard for some people to reconcile. And I can, I can see that. Um, I think the problem comes, or what, what creates the problem rather is, how we understand God's activity in the universe, like how God acts and what it means to create. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, there's certainly nothing in the Christian tradition and I see nothing in the Bible 
that precludes God from writing the laws of the universe. Uh, well, right. That's yeah. Sorry to cut in, but that's what I was going to say is, um, you know, it's obviously we're living in a system. We see it playing out every day. This affects this, which affects this, you know, and yeah. you know, outside of like a little divine intervention tweak here and there or something the way I remember being a really little kid and my mom trying to explain some stuff from the Bible to me. And she was, she always explained it very figuratively, like the whole, um, uh, Adam and Eve being, you know, created from mud. And she's like, well, science says that there was this primordial ooze, which is mud. And then there was bacteria, which evolved into this and this and this, and then eventually into man. So science says the same thing as the Bible. It's just yeah. a little different timeline. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Like I was saying before, like, you know, the Nazarene church's position is that, you know, we affirm that God created like how you interpret that statement, you know, how you believe that God created is totally fine with us. Whether, I mean, as a denomination, I mean, I, I have serious problems with creationism because it, um, denies, facts so like intellectually I have a problem with it <laughs> mm-hmm. but and theologically it is a twisting of scripture it's making the bible do something that the bible is not trying to do um genesis 1 through 3 are not trying to say this is a word-by-word account of how god created or a step-by-step scientific account of how god created like that is not what the writers of the old testament or the writers of genesis were trying to do like they're right. trying to make a theological statement they're right. trying to say that it is God who is behind everything. It is God who breathes life into the universe. Um, they're not trying to say how God does that specifically. Um, because, like, I mean, if you follow the, the creation account, one, there's two creation accounts, one just one, one just two. Um, they don't follow the same order. Um, light comes before stars. So I'll explain that one. Um, you know, and there's other things that like should tip you off or my, one of my old Testament professors at Yale said, he's like, you know, what should really tip you off that this is a myth, although myths come with truth, but what should tip you off that this is, let's call it an allegory, call it whatever you want to call it. Um, is the fact that when you get to Genesis chapter four, um, there's a talking snake. And like, if you read a book anywhere else in creation at any point in time, and there was a talking snake, you would say, oh, this is not supposed to be taken literally because it's a talking snake. Um, and yet we ignore that in Genesis um, for whatever reason, but you know, I, it, it's twofold. Like I have intellectual problems with creationism. I have theological problems with creationism, but kind of like the connected to what we were talking about before with like Pentecost- Pentecostalism and charismatic, you know, I've got theological problems with some of that and ideal and, you know, uh, intellectual problems with some of that, but like, you know, if you believe in creationism, there's nothing about that that prevents you from, you know, clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the poor, yeah. you know? And so at right. the end of the day, for me, um, if you're doing those things, I mean, if you're being Jesus, if you're loving your enemies and um, embodying Christ to your neighbors, if you want to believe in creationism, still don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> but, People want like, to spend so much energy debating yeah. it back and forth. And it's just like, come on guys. Yeah, and, and like guys like Ken Ham have built an empire on this stuff. Yeah. Right. And like you said, it doesn't affect the overall message. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely has um, tentacles and other things that I think are important. Um, like, again, like creation care. 
you know, um, like if you're debunking the science um, behind like evolution, then you've got you're gonna you're unintentionally debunking science that undergirds a lot of our understanding of the climate. Um, and so, how, how do we know whether or not like climate change is happening if we can't trust the science? And so, like you know, when you open up that Pandora's box, there's a lot of problems. And so that's where I, you know, I think there's serious issues. But you know, I know a lot of good godly men and women who have all kinds of wonky ideas, including myself who has wonky ideas on things, you know, and, and if you're still incarnating Jesus, according to Jesus, that's, that's what matters. Not, you know, whether or not we had bad ideas about things. I mean, there are people out there that will say that this allegory or this story is absolutely essential because that is the reason why Jesus came or if you can't trust that story, how can we trust the Gospels? Right, right. So it's like they take that and they say, well, but we have to have it as a whole. We can't have it just as just well, as this is fiction and this is not. You know, they're, they're, I'm not saying that I believe that, but there are people out there that will no, say that. You're absolutely right. And that is the – for them, that's the sort of um, nail in the coffin of – of believing in evolution, you know, and the problem is it goes back to kind of what we we're talking about before of this black and white worldview, and um, everything has to be you know clean cut and nice and neat, and so there's no nuance you know brought to biblical interpretation when they take that position, um, and that's a broader problem. There's no nuance to a lot of the things that we do in our faith today, um, or the things that we believe, or the political positions that we take, or mm-hmm. how we treat people, um, but the um, the problem there is that you can absolutely affirm the truth of Genesis and absolutely affirm the truth of the Gospels and not believe in creationism. Because, again, the truth of Genesis is not a scientific process. The truth of Genesis is in the beginning God and that God breathed life into man. And the truth of uh, and it's expressed in a different way than the Gospels are expressing. The Gospels are considered are are concerned with a historical moment because the gospels are concerned with, um, and the word was made flesh and, and, you know, God came and dwelt among us. And so like that claim, God became man. And I mean, the incarnation, um, is dependent on a historical reality, right? Um, like we have to believe that's historical because that's what that doctrine, that's what the whole salvation rests on is that Jesus really existed and that Jesus really lived and that Jesus really died for, you know, died on a cross and Jesus really resurrected. And so like that, those truths come together. And I think the problem is there and with people like Ken Ham is they're being dishonest about how we read the Bible. And so they're flattening the diversity of scripture. And so mm-hmm. instead of saying, Hey, we should read the Psalms differently than we should read Leviticus because Leviticus is a list of, of, of laws and the Psalms are a list of poems. They're saying, no, we have to read it all the same way. Um, and that's right. how they get this, this false dichotomy of if we can't trust Genesis, we can't trust the resurrection account. And the reality is we can trust both and we can believe one is literal and one is metaphorical because that's the way the writers intended it. Because sometimes people in the Bible write for literal things like Paul and his letters. And sometimes people write metaphorically like the Psalms. There's a lot um, because, of authors in there. Yeah, because it's poetry. And yeah, I mean, you have 66 books, but you've got dozen or more than 66 authors. I mean, in Genesis alone, like we're talking before about, I mentioned redaction criticism. So there's this thesis that the Pentateuch Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy is actually written by, um, I think four different sources, 
Um, my friends are going to mock me now because I can't remember J D E and P I think anyway, who cares, but it's a multitude of authors. It's not, you know, Moses, it's several people. And then when you begin to look at it, like did the Genesis account, you see two different creation stories because they're two, they're trying to make, there's two different people trying to make two different theological points. And again, it's the theological point that matters, you know, yeah. not this local thing. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the problems that we face in the church today as Christians, I think come down to our inability to read the Bible well and, and to read it faithfully. Because and Deuteronomy we has was written later, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean I mean think about the, the story of Genesis. Who exactly was was there to record the beginning? You know, or if, if Moses supported supposedly wrote the book of Deuteronomy, how did he write the chapter on his death? Yeah, so that's what I was about to say. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah I, and then and then again to tie more into what we were talking about earlier. I mean, as a church collectively Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever. I mean, we just, we've done a really bad job with discipleship and people have really bad ideas about the faith. And the, the problem is the ideas lead to action. And so, you know, a lot of us have been told that, you know, all we need to do is go down to an altar and we're saved. And then if we need God's help, we can just pick a Bible up in isolation and, and figure it out for ourselves. And I mean, both of those ideas, while on the surface, like don't sound that terrible or awful, have really serious consequences. And I think we're running into a lot of those consequences yeah, now. That's where you get serpent seed theory. That's where that comes from. What theory? Serpent seed theory. I don't know that. What, what is that? that? Serpent seed theory is the idea that uh, you had Cain and Abel, and Cain was the serpent's son, and Abel was the son of Adam. Interesting. I hadn't heard yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Cain's uh, lineage gives rise to the Nephilim. And so anyone that is descended from Cain, which somehow they got on the ark uh, through Ham, I think, that they were uh, a Nimrod, that they are not worthy of salvation because they are the, they are the uh, descendants of the serpent. Is that, is, that, sorry, is that an attempt to avoid like the obvious incest or is that? I'm not that sure. Enough? But it, but it is, it is an idea that is out there. I so like the the real cynic in me wonders. There, there could be some really easy like racial connotations of that that you could read into. Yeah, you know, because right, there's certainly white supremacist movements who look at Cain and the mark of Cain and make that a, mm -hmm. a racist um, statement. And if Cain came from a snake, then then you've got your sanctified racism right there. Yeah, um, that's what's dangerous about it. Exactly, exactly. Right. That's really interesting. Yep. Well, Zach, it has been incredible, man. It's been enlightening. Hey, thanks uh, for having me. I had a blast. Uh, anytime you guys want to do it again, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And since you're here in Nashville, we need to try to get together. Yeah, man. Uh, just, just let me know. I, you know, like I said, I've got a pretty busy schedule changing diapers and making bottles. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, tell everybody <laughs> where they can get in touch with you. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to see a book come out some point yeah i'm uh i'm working on it um i uh thought i had one coming out a couple of years ago and then uh, believe it or not that ken ham kerfuffle kind of uh threw a wrench in that um i'll tell you that story some other time but um yeah i uh i'm hoping for that too um but in the meantime people can you know come to my blog at zachhunt.net don't go to zachhunt.com because it's owned by a fitness instructor in spokane washington who spells his name differently than me but still owns my domain 
Um, so go to dot net. <laughs> you can follow me on Facebook. Um, I've got a public page. It's facebook.com slash Zach Hunt, but Zach has two A's in it. Um, and then also on Twitter, Instagram, my handles are also Zach Hunt, but Zach has two A's in it. You can follow me there and um, watch me rant on Twitter about Donald Trump or post <laughs> pictures of barbecue on uh, Instagram. Well, excellent, Zach. Stay on the line for us. And guys, we're going to close this section out and we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Oh, wow that was that was good yeah i i really like zach yeah yeah see we're not all bible thumping <laughs> trump loving right well it, <laughs> it's always interesting to hear somebody that's a devout christian that echoes a lot of my own beliefs you know right and throughout the uh throughout the episode there there's there a lot of times where i was just like sitting here nodding my head like yeah yeah, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Was there any, what was it, something particular that you really made you think? Um, a lot of the little, um, like little discrepancies and stuff and how, how people are like, people want to take it so word for word, even though it's, you know, it's a 2000 year old book that's been translated a bunch of times and the context is different it's Mm -hmm. relating to a different time period and there's like six you know well over 60 some what is 64 authors like way more than that probably yeah and you just you have to take it for what it is like i mean it's it's fine to read it and say this is you know this is the foundation of our faith and stuff but it's you gotta you've got to take it a step further you know you've got to be willing to to really kind of delve into it and think about it for yourself and come up with your own ideas. And like I said, religion, it should be a personal spiritual journey. There's, you know, nobody out there, I don't think it's possible to read the Bible, Bible front to back and be like, okay, I got it. Like I'm set, you know, I understand everything. Like it's just not how it works. So yeah. for there to be no wiggle room for some people, that just blows my mind. And it's almost impossible to actually read it from front to back, right? Because you got the whole like Leviticus and yeah, some of it's hard to get through. Really difficult <laughs> books that are hard to get through. But you know, he kind of brought that up as a point. Uh, yeah. I mean, perfect. What what I've wanted to talk about, I think, for a long time, and you definitely we've talked about some of this with Doctor Future, and I'd love to get him and Doctor Future together. I oh, that'd be amazing. Think that they. They have very much the same opinion. You wouldn't have to talk that episode. No, I would not. <laughs> you, I, w- I definitely would not. I would just sit there. I would just like ask the occasional question, and I would I would just be done probably. A little steering, and that's about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, you know, it's um, it's a difficult subject, man. When you talk about Christianity. I mean, you know, it's very, it's a very sense, it's a very sensitive thing. 
and people are, I'm sure there are going to be things that he talked about that people are going to listen to on this show. Cause you know, we are on like fringe radio network and there's a good percentage of people. And that's a very Christian based network. And there's going to be people that are going to listen to what Zach says and they're going to have some, something to, you know, they're going to have some objections to some of the things that he says. And all of you should email us because we do want to hear about it. Yes. (laughs) Don't flame us on Facebook. Just send us an email. (laughs) But I myself, you know, and and there's been quite a few people that look at something like the, the Genesis account and say that there's a lot more to it than what you're, than what you're seeing. Um, you know, I look at it as kind of figurative or an allegory or those kind of things. But I also right. think, I also think there is a little bit of history there as well. I do too. But, um, the possibility that we're going to be able to sift through it at this point and figure out what is historically accurate and what yeah. is not is it's, the, the chances of being able to do that are slim to none. And even if you did, it's not going to discredit the, the message itself. Like Zach was saying, you know, love your neighbor, be kind to each other, mm-hmm. you know, treat people the way you want to be treated, whether they're, they're immigrants, whether they have different beliefs than you, whether they look different than you, it doesn't matter that Jesus just, it was a message of love and that's do how it should be treated. Others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the very important message. And then other messages that are in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. You know, these are all things that are very important. And I I don't hear this coming out of Trump's mouth. I don't hear this coming out of evangelical leaders' mouths. I don't, you know. It doesn't support the agenda. And that's, that's, that's another thing I've been saying for a long time, like on the podcast. It's just that it it's, it's been used for centuries. Religion has always been used, I think, by um, political leaders, you know, as a way to control people. It's because it, it's, and it, it goes back to what Zach was saying about it's a it's a comfort thing. Like you want to be you want you want to feel comfortable. You want to feel accepted. You want to feel like you're going somewhere nicer after this. You better fall in line. Yeah. And that's, well, I mean, that's a huge threat. It's a huge motivator. And that's why it gets used that way. The point that he made about Christian, uh, Christianities in the early age of the church, as opposed to Christianity, you know, the plural, you know, that's a good point because there were different screen, streams of thought in early Christianity. You know, nothing really gets put on paper to say, this is what we believe until the Council of Nicaea. And that's around like the 320s AD. And the reason for that was because of the Emperor Constantine, who wanted to unite the Roman Empire under a single emperor, under a single religion. Right. And he found, even though Constantine himself was not a quick Christian. And there's actually some debate on whether he was or not. He actually was um, baptized on his deathbed, but he actually worshiped like the sun God, Sol Invictus. Okay. 
And that's why we have Sunday now as like the day that everybody goes to church. That's why we have Christmas on December 25th, because that was the feast day of Sol Invictus. Okay. So that's a borrowing. That's, that was Christianity bringing itself in line with the Roman state. Right. Which it did other times after that as well. Mm-hmm. And Constantine said, okay, I need something. And Christianity was a good percentage of the population at the time. And he said, but I need Christians to come together and unite as well into these different, into some kind of cohesive unit and say, this is what we believe. And that's where you get the Nicene Creed. Well, that didn't exactly work because there were Christians that disagreed with it. And you had all these different heresies like Arianism and all these different ideas that were around. Um, Gnosticism was very important, although that was a little bit before Constantine. But my point about that is what is that religion, especially Christianity, was used by the Roman state to impose authority. And this is this whole idea from when Constantine is at the Battle of Milvian Bridge and he sees the He's about to fight one of his rivals for control of Rome, and he sees one. Of, he sees in the sky this cross, or so the story goes, that says, "In this sign, you will conquer." And he is commanded by an angel or somebody to put uh, this sign on this shield, and it's a cross. It's called the Cairo. Okay, and this has been a symbol that is the symbol of Christendom and not Christianity. It's a symbol of the power of the church as it is, as it, as the Roman state declined and disintegrated, the church took that over. In fact, in the Eastern empire, the emperor was still the head of the church. So yeah, you're right. The mixture of the church power of the, of church and the state together it's a very dangerous combination sometimes. And even in more modern times, like uh, in Nazi Germany, with the uh, you know, the Nazis trying to get the churches to come into line, and the churches being so, most of the people in the churches being so for Germ- for Hitler and for Germany, and not for Christ, and not for what they what they stood for, and the corruption that was there as well. Guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? The guys that spoke out <clears> against <throat> that. It's like all the all the dogmatism sticks, and all the morals just get dropped by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the point I wanted to make about the but the point I wanted to make about the Genesis book, uh, there's some interesting things in there if you ever read it. I mean, like. You have Adam and Eve, you have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, right? Mm. And Cain is sent out east of Eden, supposedly by himself to the land of Nod, or whatever it's called, wherever that is. And God tells him, he puts the mark on him, right? And God tells him, no man, if any man shall see you, they shall kill you. And then they shall have the mark tenfold or something like that. Well, if supposedly at this point, there's only three people on earth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's in the Bible. That's God saying that in the Bible. Right. right. And then God, then, then it says Cain took a wife. Okay. 
And a lot of people will say, well, that's, it was his sister. It must've been his sister, but that's not in there. It doesn't say Cain took his sister. It just says Cain took a wife. So the implication is, is that there's other people that are around. And then what is, he has a kid with this woman. And then what does Cain do? He builds a city. Well, if there's only like Adam and Eve somewhere out to the West and then Cain and his wife and kid, why does he need to build a city? So the implication is, is that there's other people around. Right. Well, and that's, that's my whole point is like, especially in the old Testament, these are stories that were you know, told by word of mouth for ages right. before they were written down. And it's, they're just lessons. They're just, they're teachings. They're mm-hmm. things to make you think about certain things to, to make you, you know, try to behave certain ways. And you got to look at what the, the, the reasoning and the morals behind the story is more important than the story itself. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And there's another way to look at it too, because in the new Testament, you have these genealogies that, you know, in Matthew, it goes from Adam to Jesus. And in Luke, it go, it works backwards from Jesus to Adam. And like the genealogies are a little different in Luke. And some of the speculation there is that what's in Luke is actually the genealogy of Mary, but it runs through David, Solomon, the Kings, you know, back through, you know, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and then all the way to Adam. And so the idea there is that what we're actually, the story that we're actually getting in the book of Genesis is the story of this family, the story of this bloodline. And this is this bloodline that eventually leads to Christ. So... It's interesting how important that was to people, the bloodlines, you know, and then we still have yeah. today with like the, um, the Dan Brown books and stuff like the whole bloodline thing is still, yeah. The Holy blood matters Holy to Grail some people. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which I think is total crap. I do too, but, but it's just interesting that people even care. Like it's yeah. like, we need a monarchy. We need, we need you to rule us. <laughs> yeah. We need a monarchy that's specifically, um, descended from Jesus. And just specifically descended from King David. Well, it's like we have this draw to that. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's it. Um, Guys, um, in we're going to take about a two week break. I am moving and next week, and then we will have on, I think his name is spelled Worcester, like the sauce, Jeff Worcester. He's probably, if he's listening, he's probably going to, Oh, he just totally just cringed. Yeah, probably. Uh, Worcester, something like that. But we're going to talk about the deep state with him. And he has an organization called Center for Political Research. I'm really excited about that one uh, to get some time to talk about what's going on and maybe talk a little about the history of the deep state and all that. But Rob, uh, before we go, tell everyone where they can sign up to be a patron or to make donations. Uh, yeah, there's links on our website, www.conspiranormal.com. There's uh, links to our Patreon account, which is www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And there you can find bonus episodes. Uh, we're going to post some blog stuff. You can talk to other listeners. 
a sort of a social link thing. And we also, we want to give a little extra to people who feel like maybe it's helping support the show. Different tiers, you know, you can sign up for a dollar a month, $3 a month, $5, whatever you want. There's different various packages that go along with that. Or if you don't want to be involved with something like that and you'd like to just do a one-time donation, you can do that through the website as well by clicking on the donate button. Uh, and if you don't feel like doing that and you just want to support the show, a great way to do that is with a nice five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, absolutely, guys. And thank you so much. And we're about to go on Charm the Water again. And I think we're going to be talking about some similar um, issues that we just talked about here with, uh, I think, with Aaron and also with, I think, his friend Kelly, possibly. Oh, but nice. uh, so guys, uh, be looking for that in the two weeks that you don't have us. Uh, listen to check out Aaron's podcast; it's really good. And guys, thank you so much. And we will be back in, in about two weeks, maybe with Luke. You never know. Oh, definitely with Luke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about.
As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.